We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 103 of the Spurs Up Show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. Got a packed show for you guys, starting with recapping the Gamecocks recruiting weekend. South Carolina picking up a big-time offensive line commit, some other news and notes, some notable things coming from the Gamecocks recruiting weekend in Columbia, South Carolina. Also, could we see alcohol sales soon in Williams-Brice Stadium? South Carolina, the SEC has lifted the ban on stadium-wide alcohol sales. I'll talk about why it would be a good thing, why it could be a bad thing, and just sort of break down that decision by the SEC. Also, some kickoff times and now some gambling lines released, your listener questions, and a fantastic interview with former Gamecocks shortstop Bobby Haney as we break down what led him to South Carolina, his Gamecocks career, winning the 2010 College World Series. Also, he's a published author, has a podcast, is doing a bunch of summer baseball camps. It's all brought to you by our friends over at SeatGeek. SeatGeek, the best ticket-buying app by far, the only ticket-buying app I use, and the only one I would recommend to you guys. They've actually got a great ticket rating system where they rate the tickets for you, so they do all the work for you in regards to knowing if you're getting a good deal, if you're getting a bad deal, if you're getting a steal, stuff like that. Go download the SeatGeek app, use the promo code SPURSUP, you're going to save $10 off your first purchase. Literally that simple. You can get tickets to anything and everything, whether it be sports, comedy club events, uh, concerts, festivals, maybe this summer. Obviously, all your South Carolina Gamecock sporting events as well. Literally anything and everything you need, SeatGeek has got it. So, again, go download that SeatGeek app. Use the promo code SPURSUP and save $10 off your first purchase. All right, let's get into it. I'm Chris Phillips, your host of the Spurs Show. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in. Got a packed show for you guys. We're going to start with what happened over the weekend, obviously. Gamecocks are one of the biggest recruiting weekends in recent memory. Obviously, tons of top prospects on campus. We previewed it a little bit last week, and obviously want to recap what happened over the weekend. We'll start. Um, expected to be two or three Spurs up over the weekend. This one was not one that we expected. Um, Gamecocks picking up a commitment from 2023-star offensive lineman Jaston Turnantine. Um, out of Stockbridge, Georgia, out of junior college, actually. Hutchinson uh, Community College is where he's coming from. Um, a big-time pickup. You know, Eric Wolford is not a guy I question about who he brings on campus. Eric Wolford is the is the, the the guru when it comes to offensive line. The guys he brings in, he's able to make those guys good and make those guys better. And I don't think this will be an exception. You look at Justin Turner team, I mean, the measurables are there. He's six seven three forty. 340. Um, literally a massive human being. Um, and the Gamecocks, obviously, we know in the SEC, it's one on the line of scrimmage. So, I mean, a guy like this, again, 
it's not a not a commitment that's going to draw any kind of crazy rave reviews or get fans like really fired up like a Miles Murphy or a Jordan, Jordan Birch or like other names would do. But overall, you know, a really nice pickup, a really nice signing by South Carolina. Obviously, the Gamecocks, again, know they've got to win on the line of scrimmage. You want to do things to improve the running game. I would imagine a guy like this, too, you know, coming in from the junior college ranks and being the size that he is, I don't know if they'll want him to maybe lose some weight or what the deal will be, but I'd imagine he's going to be pretty much ready to play immediately. Um, you have to think, you know, Eric Wolford and Will Muschamp, those guys, they know they're losing a couple guys in the offensive line after this season. Um, and I believe I read somewhere where turning team would be an early enrollee. Um, so overall, you know, a solid pickup, obviously, for South Carolina, just one of the spurs up, obviously the only spurs up over the weekend, but definitely some good, some other good indications. The Gamecocks have a lot coming for them. We'll start kind of uh, just looking at back at what happened over the weekend. Obviously, I think the big thing everybody likes to talk about is Tank on a tank, Tank Bigsby posting up a photo. South Carolina literally brought him out to the Carol- the, uh, the South Carolina Armory, um, put him on top of a tank, and it made for one of the best photos of the weekend, in my opinion, obviously. Very, very cool. The rumors, the thoughts are this is possibly something for a commitment video, which would not shock me, obviously. I mean, everybody that you talk to seems to feel that Tank Bigsby is going to be a Gamecock, so it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, it looks like he's fairly close to making a decision from people that I've talked to, from things that I've heard. Um, the photo also that Daquan Bobo Stewart posted on, on Twitter that we reposted on Instagram. Um, I'll pull it up here for you guys. Um, great radio, right? This is great, great podcasting. Um, <laughs> uh, the photo he posted, though, Mike Wyman, Luke Doty, Tank Bigsby, and Daquan Bobo Stewart. I said, if you don't get fired up by this, you simply just do not have a pulse. Because to think of those four guys in Garnet and Black, I mean, those are four elite-level prospects. And, I mean, it's you know, we all know it's about the Jimmys and Joes, not the X's and O's. And those guys are the Jimmys and Joes, in my opinion. Those are four of the best in their class. Um, and those are the kind of guys you need to get to change, you know, change a program to get your program to the next level. So an awesome photo. Um, having all those guys on campus at once, it definitely seems like they have a good relationship if they're willing to do that with each other, take those photos, stuff like that. Um, also something big coming out of the weekend. Again, there weren't a ton of – there was only one spurs up, if you will, only one commitment. Um, but I think South Carolina positioned itself very, very well as far as moving forward in the future. Miles Murphy, the four-star defensive end, he named a leader after the weekend. It was South Carolina. Um, I thought that he would be a guy that would commit over the weekend, but obviously did not. But Gamecock's still sitting very nicely with him. Also, one thing that very, very much surprised me over the weekend, um, Jordan Birch did not make the five-star defensive end. He did not make the, the official visit this weekend, which, was to, which told me in my mind that, okay, South Carolina, it was fun while it lasted for us to talk about maybe Jordan Birch coming to Carolina, but it doesn't seem like they're going to get him if he's not coming. Then the Jordan Birch crystal balls start dropping. Um, he is predicted by some to go to South Carolina, which I thought was very interesting. Again, it, it, it's all it's all who knows at this point. You guys know very well that I am, you know, I feel like it's blasphemy to say this, but I'm, I'm not as a diehard recruiting person as some people, just because in this situation, it's all, it's all a guess. You know, the, the Jordan Birch stuff, it's all a guess. Um, but overall, I mean, South Carolina, I'd say right now, has as good a shot as anybody. I mean, I, that's really what it comes down to. I think they've got as good a, good a shot as anybody. Um, but you, when you take a look at just the 2020 class and what South Carolina is doing and the way they're building, that's why that's why I don't understand the people that get so, um, you know, get so upset or flustered with Will Muschamp or have their opinions on Will Muschamp. You can have your opinions, it's fine. But what this man is doing on the recruiting trail, I, I think he's doing everything he possibly can to get the absolute best players on campus at South Carolina. And it's obviously paying off. Like the guys, they're, they're getting signed, they're bringing in. The talent is only getting better at South Carolina. So it's no doubt his staff, 
I mean, again, a guy like Eric Wolfer with the Jason Turner team commitment, yes, he's rated, he's rated a three-star, if you will, but, I mean, Eric Wolford, heck, he's earned the – his reputation precedes him. He's earned the benefit of the doubt that, like, whoever he brings in as, as an offensive lineman, it's a good signing. I mean, it's just period. Eric Wolford seems to have the magic touch when it comes to offensive line. Um, and these guys he brings in, again, I mean, you just – you think about the guys that South Carolina is projected to get and that has good chances to get with the 2020 class, and you just have to be really, really excited if you're a South Carolina fan. Again, I saw that photo of Daquan Bobo Stewart, and it was him – Wyman, Luke Doty, Tank Bigsby. I mean, can you just imagine? You've already got Marshawn Lloyd committed to you. Throw him in there. I mean, it's it, you know, obviously it's recruiting. Guys have got to you know, once they step on campus, we've got to put the pads on. They've got to play out, and these guys have got to sign. That's why, like, I don't get too too carried away um, because they've got to sign. You know, a lot can happen. Guys flip on signing day. There's a lot of things that happen, but you've got to be excited about just the prospects of what South Carolina is building right now and the type of guys, the type of names they're getting on campus and the type of names that, you know, they're leading for and getting to consider South Carolina. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, it's very, very exciting what Will Muschamp and staff are doing, it, no doubt. Um, you know, I know some – it's, you know, it's funny that people want to talk about, and I've said it before too, Will Muschamp's future and long-term – I mean, again, this guy's doing everything he can do on the recruiting trail. I, I, you have to feel really, really good about him. We think about – the 2007 class was the one that really turned things around for Steve Spurrier. That was a lot of your big-time guys, 2007, 2008 as well. Um, but, I mean, overall, I see what this 2020 class being similar to, like, a 2007 class. It can be. It can be. It can be one of those classes, because, you, you know, as Will Muschamp says, you don't know how good a recruiting class is until you look back three, four years later. I think this could be one where we look back three, four years later and say this was the difference. This, was, this is what changed South Carolina and got them back going in that direction they were in. 2010 to 2013 say so very very exciting weekend obviously again not quite as many spurs up or not not quite as many commitments as maybe we had hoped or thought but I think South Carolina again is sitting in a very very good position you know a lot of these guys you know people ask why did this guy not commit why that guy not commit well I think a lot of these guys want to like you saw Marshawn Lloyd do they make a whole production out of it now like it's a huge thing they make videos stuff like that so, I mean, you know, these guys are going to take their time doing it. They've got plenty of time. Signing day is not until December. But um, I think South Carolina definitely put themselves in a great position after this past weekend. And you've got to be, again, if you're a Gamecock fan, and if you're listening to this, you certainly are a Gamecock fan, you've got to be very, very excited what Will Muschamp, T-Rob, Brian McClendon, what this entire, you know, Eric Wolford, what this entire staff is building and the type of guys they're getting on campus. Um it's very exciting stuff. I know it fires me up, no doubt. Um, all right, let's move into a very interesting topic, uh, kind of off the field, if you will. It was announced over the week that uh, – or excuse me, this past week, the SEC has lifted the ban on alcohol sales, stadium-wide alcohol sales with restrictions. Uh, effective date is August 1st. Basically, long story short, what this means is that South Carolina is able to sell alcohol at its, uh, you know, sporting venues, if you will, Williams-Brice Stadium, Colonial Life Arena, Founders Park. Um, they were do it. The SEC has lifted that ban. Now it's just up to South Carolina. Ray Tanner's already come out and said something. It's something they're going to do research on. They're obviously not – they don't want to negatively impact the fan experience. They're going to look into it, see how it could, it could be a benefit. It could be, um, you know, something that could harm the game day experience, I guess. And they're going to look into it deeper and make a decision. Who, When that decision will come, will it come by, you know, first game this year? Will it come by this season? Who knows? Um, in my personal opinion, I mean, listen, it's it's kind of weird. I mean – Every other sporting venue, basically, I feel like in the world, serves alcohol. I just don't understand the 
the problem, even if you don't like to drink, people that, you know, know me, I, I do like to drink. I like to have a beverage at a game. I, like, you know, I was talking with a buddy of mine. How great would it be to just be able to have a cold beer at Founders Park watching a baseball game? You do it at every other baseball game, every minor league, major league park. Um, you do it. I, I mean, listen, whether you want to have a drink or don't, I don't even care. It's up to you. But I, I think this is something that, you know, I mean, it would be silly for me to think that the school wouldn't want to do it because they're going to make a ton of money off it. And I know the biggest, I guess the biggest selling point, I know Barrett Salee, friend of the show, has been very adamant about you want people beer drunk and not whiskey drunk in the sense that when you don't allow people to drink in the stadium, they're, they're going super, super hard at the tailgate. They're bringing in mini bottles, stuff like that. And I do definitely understand it from that point because maybe people would stop bringing in the mini bottles. I don't think you would completely stop that because, listen, there are going to be some people that don't want to pay $9 for a beer. Like, that is completely understandable. I'm not somebody that really wants to pay $9 for a beer, but I don't drink in the game. I don't bring mini bottles in the game, like, because I'm trying to watch the game, honestly. Um, but, but, you know, I just think this is something that's way overdue. It, people that are freaking out, that are saying, oh, I, I will not give any more money to the school if they do that. Yes, you will. They, they just don't. I don't understand the people that are trying to be overly sensitive and overly dramatic about this decision. I mean, listen. Let grown people make the decisions they want to make. If they want to drink a beer in the stadium, let them do it. These are people that pay, that work their tails off. They pay their hard-earned money to buy these tickets. Ticket prices aren't getting any cheaper, by the way. They give their money to the school. They pay their hard-earned money to get these tickets. I think the least you can do, if they want to have a beer in the stadium, which, I mean, they've got to be 21. It's not like we're going to have minors drinking beers. If you want to have a beer in the stadium, you should be more than entitled to do so. That, that's just my take on it. I, I mean, I, again, I don't understand the people that are, you know, up in arms about this. I mean, other schools have already done this and nothing bad has come of it. I think I heard West Virginia or somebody like that. It actually helped the game day experience. They had less stuff going on. Um, again, you got to make – you got to let – grown grown adults make their own decisions right so I'm I'm obviously you can hear I'm 100% for it I think it would be smart for the school I think it would I don't think it's going to hurt the game day experience at all not everybody in the stadium is going to drink I mean it just you know people asked about the student section I mean you still got to be 21 I know there are fake IDs but you still got to be 21 not every single kid is going to have a fake ID and not every single kid is going to want to pay nine dollars for a beer like you think college kids are really going to want to pay nine bucks for a beer they're still going to kind of do the same thing, I feel like. Like, sure, there will be some guy, there will be some people that are 21 that have daddy's money or just are in a good financial situation. They'll pay for $9 beers, whatever, and let them do it. Screw it. They're 21. But I, I just don't see it being, like, some people freaking out. I mean, I literally saw somebody saying that if this was, if this was passed, if South Carolina had alcohol sales at Williams-Rice, they would not even renew their season tickets or something. I'm just like, that is just – that's insane. I mean, it sounds like you're just looking for a way out at this point. So – I think it's good, again, and I, I think I do agree with somebody what they said on social media, that it's going to have more impact at Colonial Life Arena and Founders Park than it will at Williams-Brice Stadium, just because the ability to – it's different. Having a beer at a baseball game or a basketball game versus having one at a football game, you don't tailgate those other two events like you do a football game. See, I mean, you really don't even necessarily need a beer at a football game. Um, but, yes, being able to go to the ballpark, grab a beer if you want one, um, I think would be awesome. I really do. I think it would be awesome. I think they're – <clears throat> again fans you know you have the you have the right to decide whether you want to drink or not whatever you want to do is completely up to you and respect the decision either way I mean I you know just do whatever you want to do but uh, the people you know that work their tails off that pay the money to get in the stadiums that give the money to the school where South Carolina's able to do the different things they're able to do you know you, you shouldn't have to be some high level booster you shouldn't have to be in a club in a box in a suite whatever to enjoy a beverage you just shouldn't that's that's not fair in my opinion so 
I'm 100% for it. We'll have to wait and see. Again, you know, we'll see what Ray Tanner decides. I I just, you know, he's already on thin ice with a lot of the fan base. Um, And, man, if they get this – if they get – it's not a – this is not a life-or-death decision, but if they get this decision wrong and and say that they're not going to allow it, people are going to be up in arms. I mean, you, you might not think so. But I guarantee you, people will be up in arms if he gets this decision wrong and does not allow alcohol in the stadium. We'll just we'll have to wait and see. Um, all right, moving this again, some more football kickoff times announced. We already knew the Gamecocks are taking on Alabama at 3.30 on CBS. The first two games of the South Carolina football season announced. Gamecocks taking on North Carolina and Charlotte opening weekend. Uh, that will be a 3.30 kickoff, again, at Bank of America Stadium. Week two, South Carolina taking on Charleston Southern in another non-conference game. This game at Williams-Brice Stadium. Noon kickoff. Um, <laughs> so, you can expect at least week two, without a doubt, to be a scorcher um, from someone who has lived in Charlotte, 3.30 in Charlotte, and, uh, you know, into August, beginning of September. It could be okay there. It's not quite as hot there as people think. It's definitely not as hot as Columbia. So, I expect that one probably be like low 90s. But, yeah, week two in Columbia is going to be brutal. Noon kickoff. Um, obviously, would have loved to see one of those games at night. I know South Carolina coming off the, the Belk Bowl loss. You're not going to get a whole lot of – you're not going to get exactly the primetime kickoff slot, if you will. But overall, um, 3.30, noon, and 3.30 are your first three weeks of Gamecocks football season. Um, some other things that go along with that, gambling lines are announced for the three, I guess you could call them the three biggest games of the season, Clemson, Georgia, and Alabama. Let's run through those lines really quickly. Alabama, an 18-point favorite over the Gamecocks in the week three matchup at Williams-Brice Stadium. Georgia, a 20-point favorite in the game in Athens this year. And Clemson, a 23-point favorite over the Gamecocks, that game being played in Williams-Brice Stadium. Overall, you know, I asked the question to, you know, our followers on social media, what are your thoughts on this? The spread's too high, too low. What's the best chance to cover? I mean, to me, the thing that immediately jumps out is how in the world is South is the, the smallest line South Carolina's game against Alabama? That, that to me, is shocking. That, that, to me, is genuinely shocking. I mean, I, what scares me the most is I think people – People saw Alabama get dismantled by Clemson, and I'm not saying everybody's writing off Alabama by any sense, but people are – I don't want that game to give fans like a false sense of hope, if you will. And I don't say that, you know, in a negative way or anything because, listen, you never know what can happen. But overall, I mean, the Gamecocks being – I just think for Clemson to be a bigger favorite than Alabama is to me is weird. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I still think Alabama's the best team in college football. Clemson obviously, I mean, dismantled Bama last year. But I think overall, I still think Alabama's the team to beat until otherwise noted. The game, you know, listen, South Carolina got dismantled by Georgia last year when he's Bryce. 20 points. I would take the Gamecocks plus 20. Um, I, here's the thing. I would certainly play – I would certainly take Clemson – or South Carolina plus 23 against Clemson. Not even a question. Not even a question in my mind. South Carolina lost that game by 21 last year. Really, you could argue it should have been 14, other, you know, without Clemson scoring in the last, like, five seconds of the game, if you will, um, wanting to punch that one in. But over – I mean, South Carolina lost by 21 at Clemson with a – with basically a scout team defense on the field. So, yeah, I like South Carolina to cover plus 23. I'll be honest with you guys. I know you hate to hear it. I would hammer Bama minus 18 right now. I I just – that is being completely, you know, as unbiased as I can possibly be. Just looking at it from a pure gambling perspective, I would – there's no other – there's no other line. You either take Alabama or you don't bet. I I had somebody tell me one time, nobody's ever gotten rich betting against Alabama. You you just – minus 18, I'm shocked. I, I really am. 
Because, I mean, if I took a poll of every one of our followers or just a room full of South Carolina fans, how many of you would be happy with a 17-point loss to Alabama? I think a lot of people would raise their hands. I really do. I mean, if South Carolina loses by 14 to Alabama, I will honestly, I'll be ecstatic about the prospects of the season. South Carolina, I will think, will have a really good team. Um, I'll be very happy. So I would hammer Bama minus 18. Um, Georgia minus 20 is just probably stay away from it. You know, I want to take South Carolina plus 20 because the games outside of last year are fairly competitive, fairly close. But I know I think that's a, that's a lot of what's going into it probably is look what Georgia did last year, South Carolina, and that game is in Athens. Um, so, you know, I think with a healthy defense, with a – with a defensive line that's supposed to be a lot better, I think South Carolina can keep that one a little bit closer, but overall I wouldn't touch that one. But, you know, I think the Clemson line is way too high. I think the Bama line is too low, and I think the Georgia line is going to be kind of right where we see it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if when that game comes around. And, and, you know, it's a lot of fans were kind of getting up in arms and getting upset. Listen, these lines don't mean anything because they're going to change. I mean, you're talking about the, the, the line for South Carolina Clemson came out. That game is the last game of the season. So that that line is certainly going to change, but I guess it is a fun talking point to have in the offseason when we literally have nothing else to talk about. <laughs> so, But overall, it'll be very interesting. It'll be very, very interesting to see what happens in those three games. Obviously, South Carolina's three biggest games as far as ranking are concerned. Um, and South Carolina gonna have an opp- really going to have an opportunity to prove themselves and show the program is heading on the right direction in all three of those games. All right, let's get into some listener questions. Got some good ones from you guys. Um, we'll start. Ben Smitty 2017 asked three straight questions. So, Ben, appreciate you, uh, appreciate you asking the questions, tuning in, all that good stuff. We'll start. Will our secondary be able to contain guys like Jerry Judy or Justin Ross? Will our secondary be able to contain guys like Jerry Judy or Justin Ross? I mean, you have to feel good about what you've got with J.C. Horn, Israel Mukwamu, R.J. Roderick, you know, all the young talent. I mean, I, listen, be able to contain them. That's the big thing. They're not going to be able to stop them. Nobody's going to be able to stop those guys. Um, not single-handedly, at least. I mean, the only way I could see that you stop the Clemson offense, you have an elite-level defensive line that can get to Trevor Lawrence and it, it make him very uncomfortable. I mean, it's it sounds very simple, but, like, just one-on-one, <clears throat> you know, I love what South Carolina's got in the secondary, but those two guys, Jerry Judy and Justin Ross – I mean, it's going to take a group effort. They're not going to be able to – you're not probably not going to be able to cover those guys one-on-one all day and get away with it. Those guys are going to get theirs. But <clears throat> does, South, does South Carolina have athletes capable of containing them? Yes, I think so. Um, another question, do you think A.J. Lawson is good enough to be a lottery pick in the 2020 draft? Um, <clears throat> I think lottery pick is stretching it just a little bit. And I think also one thing that hurts him, I hate to say it, but is that he plays at South Carolina. Um, if A.J. Lawson was putting up the numbers he did and he played at Duke – you know, it'd be a whole different story. But does he have that talent? Um, I think he has the talent. I just don't know that he has the measurables, um, the overall measurables, if you will. Um, I think without a doubt that he's a draft pick in next year's draft and a guy that, you know, some some GM, some NBA GM is going to be very, very happy about getting. Um, final question from Ben. Who will start at running back to begin the season? You know, I think you got to say Rico Dowdle. I mean, I, you know, unless Tavian Feaster's on campus now, we, we, we have to keep in mind that Tavian Feaster still has a decision to make. He actually visited Virginia Tech over the weekend, which was very interesting. But for everything I've heard, South Carolina's in a great position to land him. Um, so if Tavian Feaster's on campus, I think Tavian Feaster's your starting running back. If not, I still think Rico Dowdle's your guy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they've got to be telling Feaster at this point, listen, man, you come on campus, you're our guy. No doubt. I mean, just, you know, I, I like Rico Dowdle. I appreciate what he's done. You know, it's funny. I was watching some – kind of weird, I know, but I was watching some of the highlights in the Coastal Carolina game last year, and 
Rico had a really good game that day. And when he's been healthy, he's had some great games. But him being healthy and consistent, I mean, he's just been all over the map, man. So I think as much consistency as you can get the running back position, somebody like a Tavian Feaster, um, somebody steady back there, you're going to take it. So, But I think, yeah, Feaster's not on campus. I think it will be Dowdle. But I, I honestly, I kind of expect it to be Feaster. Um, J.K. Gill, 34, who all should our baseball team be worried about getting drafted and not coming back? This is a very interesting question because I've seen some different things, guys going to pro workouts, stuff like that. You know, do your thing. Obviously, do your thing. Do whatever you want to do. But if there's anybody on this South Carolina baseball team that really thinks they're ready to make that next jump from college to professional, I think is it's it's a little silly, to be honest with you. I mean, the, the only guys to me that would have a real opportunity, Luke Berryhill certainly would be one. Um, I guess you could say Eister could be one because he's a Juco guy and he's already eligible to be drafted. Um, obviously, Hopkins, Olsen, and uh, Cullen are all gone. You know, maybe, maybe Reed Morgan. I still think he definitely needs to come back. I mean, but even at that, I mean, you know, let's just say – uh, Barry Hill and Eister. I mean, these are two guys that they had solid years, but they definitely did nothing to me that warrants say, say hey, you need to leave. I mean, and the <clears throat> the draft is going to sort itself out because I don't expect either, neither one of those guys will be better than a top 20-round pick. I just don't expect it. And if you're that low, come back. You know, get better. I mean, give your – I know you want to go – you want to go as a junior. Junior year is kind of your money year because – your senior year, the team that's drafting you has all the leverage. Heck, they can sign you to a free agent deal because you're a senior. You can't go back to school. Um, but, you know, I just don't, I would be very surprised if South Carolina lost any of their key pieces to the MLB draft. And I'd be a little disappointed. I'll be honest with you. I'd be a little disappointed just because, I, you know, I think the only guy really is Luke Berryhill. And, I mean, listen, he was good for South Carolina, but – you know, he, he could he could use some development. <laughs> like there's no question in my mind. He he could still use some development. There are definitely things he could still work on and get better at. Um all right, so obviously we have the interview with Bobby Haney. I put up the picture of Bobby Haney on our Instagram when I was asking the questions. So Alexander Zero U Track Zero S seven seven, that that username is something to work on. Uh he was my baseball coach. Yeah, Bobby Haney, awesome dude. Obviously doing a lot of different camps, a lot of different uh coaching stuff, if you will. Wyland underscore the chef 33. What was going through your mind when you won the college world series? We definitely talked about that. So stay tuned for the interview. Um, <clears throat> B underscore Baker 19. What was your score on the course this weekend? Um, shot 77 actually. Yeah. Played this weekend, shot 77. So look, missed some putts, but a little bit here and there. Not too bad. Um, capped underscore way. Final question. 2021 or 2022 going to be a, our big breakout seasons. Also, tank on a mother effing tank. Yes, I tank on a tank was awesome. Tank on a tank was awesome. Um, basically, he's asking, will 2021 or 2022 be our breakout seasons? I mean, hopefully 2020 is. I mean, hopefully this year is. I mean, you know, you know I, I think South Carolina fans obviously need to be patient, but we need to, as far as our breakout seasons, as far as competing for the East and winning an SEC championship, yes. I mean, those are definitely going to be, you know, you think about that point, what is it, 2019 right now? I mean, Ryan Holinsky will be probably a redshirt sophomore. Luke Doty will be on campus. The landscape of South Carolina football will be a lot different in 2021 and 2022. I fully believe in that. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I certainly think it could be, but I think it, come, I think it could come sooner. I mean, you know, uh, you know, next year, South Carolina, obviously, again, with a tough schedule. They got a tough schedule every year, though. But next year, you think about 
you know, Jake Bentley will be gone, obviously, which, you know, that is what it is. But, you know, people are saying you'll have a brand-new quarterback. Well, I mean, Ryan Holinsky will have been on campus for a full year. Um, and I expect him to take some snaps this year. He'll, he should be ready to go if Luke Doty or De'Karon Joyner doesn't beat him out for the job. But, uh, you know, as far as what you're – yeah, as far as winning championships, truly winning an SEC title, yeah, I think it will probably be sometime at that point. But I think that breakout season could come a little bit sooner. I mean, heck, if South Carolina could figure it out this year – that I mean, who who would argue that an eight and four, nine and three season this year would not be a breakout season? I mean, if South Carolina goes nine and three, Will Muschamp deserves Coach of the Year in the SEC, no doubt. There's no question in my mind, no question. Now it's going to take some things happening. Obviously, the defense is going to be good as we hope. Uh, Jake Bentley's going to be better than we ever thought he could be. Um, South Carolina's going to have to find a running game. Um, a lot of things, you know, deep, somebody's going to replace Debo Samuel's production. A lot of things, <clears throat> a lot of questions will have to be answered. But uh, I think the breakout season could come a little bit sooner than we're all anticipating. All right, fantastic interview with former Gamecock shortstop Bobby Haney. Bobby, a guy that's really got it going on, man. Not only did he play at South Carolina, win a college world series, play in the minor leagues, but he's a published author. He has his own podcast called Tagging Up Bobby Haney. Um, He's also doing summer camps, coaching, if you will. A lot of good stuff. Bobby's all over the place doing a ton of good stuff. Um, Fantastic interview. You know, we talk about, obviously, his time in junior college, getting to South Carolina, winning that college world series. Um, minor league baseball, all the stuff he's doing outside of baseball, and much, much more. And again, it's an interview brought to you by our friends over at SeatGeek. SeatGeek, the best ticket buying app by far. Again, the only one I use. Please be sure to go save yourself some money. If you're doing anything this summer, like concerts, comedy club events, maybe you're buying your South Carolina tickets early, go to SeatGeek. Use the promo code SPURSUP. That's S-P-U-R-S-U-P. You're going to save $10 off your first purchase. Again, SeatGeek, they do all the work for you, telling you what type of deal you're getting, whether you're getting a steal, whether maybe you're overpaying for the tickets you're about to get. You know everything you need to do before you click the buy button. It's really that simple. And, again, that's why they're the only ticket buying app that I use and the only one I would recommend. So, again, go download SeatGeek. Use that promo code SPURSUP. That's S-P-U-R-S-U-P to save $10 off your first purchase. All right, enjoy this interview with former Gamecock shortstop Bobby Haney. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up Show is a man that played for Gamecocks baseball from 2009 to 2010, hit 277 for the Gamecocks, seven homers, 54 RBIs. Most well-known, one of the smoothest guys in the field you would ever see at shortstop, also was instrumental in the Gamecocks' run to their first-ever national championship in 2010. He was also taken the 20 t- 22nd round of the 2010 MLB draft by the San Francisco Giants. He's also an author, his book, From Kings Park to Omaha. He's also running a couple of baseball camps, has his own podcast, a guy that can really do it all. Pleased to welcome to the show, former Gamecock shortstop Bobby Haney. Bobby, appreciate you taking the time, man, and it's truly a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's kind of go back to the beginning, Bobby, for you. You're from Smithtown, New York. Obviously, your book profiles a lot of sort of your upbringing and how you got to South Carolina and your you run through professional baseball, but you're from Smithtown, New York. Uh, you started out your career, obviously, at junior college, where you really tore it up there. You hit 383, I think, your final year, 13 homers, 48 RBIs. Obviously, drew a lot of attention from a lot of big schools, what led you to South Carolina. Just kind of talk about, you know, coming up, the decision to come to JUCO, because I know that's obviously a decision a lot of different guys face, and then uh, sort of what led you to become a Gamecock. Yeah, um, you know, around the – Kings Park, Smithtown area where Craig Vizio is well known for and uh, just kind of looking up to him and, you know, trying to, trying to, me and my, me and my buddies trying to shadow his stats, but, you know, his jersey's hanging up there and it's always, it's always exciting, you know, chasing after a guy like, like that that goes to your high school. Um, and then, yeah, just got drafted out of high school by the Phillies late in the 38th round, kind of like a draft and follow in 2006. So that was kind of like, 
you know, we'll draft you in and see how you play, you know, throughout junior college because um, I think it redraft you again in junior college, of course. And, yeah, found a good Juco in Florida, Sarasota. Um, yeah, right near right near Longboat Key, right down there. And uh, Manatee is a great, great school, great baseball school. It competes with Chipola, which is the best in the country usually down there. And uh, I think Reese, uh, I did good down there. Then Reese Havens was, you know, leaving to go like first round or second round, I think. Yeah, I think it was first round. And then Coach Calvi just came out of nowhere and was like, hey, we need a, we need a defensive shortstop. So kind of, you know, that's kind of how the direction we're going in, how we want to replace you know, all our guys in the infield. And, and Wingo was there too. So, yeah, I was like, yeah, let's do it. I got, I got recruited by like Tampa and Elon and Barry University. That was pretty much it. And I was doing well my second year of junior college. I wanted to sign, actually, or, you know, hopefully sign pro but you know it didn't happen and then uh yeah signed with the Gamecocks and kind of the rest was uh Gamecock history I guess national so, championship history so you were kind of an under-recruited guy then would you say I mean you're talking about some of the other schools like Elon Tampa not a lot of other like big time like SEC offers or anything I mean, would you say you were a little bit maybe overlooked or under-recruited because obviously you got to college and I would say justified South Carolina signing you without a doubt yeah I uh my freshman year, I was playing like left field and third base. The Louisville guy came in as a shortstop. So I was kind of, I must have played like 35 games and probably 25 or 30 of them, you know, at third or in left field or in center. So yeah, Tampa was like throwing me like a center field opportunity or, or something. And Barry wanted me. And then I think Penn State called me after my first year. They wanted me to transfer because I didn't play that much. They wanted me to play short and I didn't want to do that. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, didn't really get, you know, the offers that I wanted to. Um, you know, I tell some people around here, which they know about, I wanted to go to I wanted to go to uh, Florida, you know, kind of my whole life, mm. just because, you know, you don't know anything about, you know, South Carolina or Columbia or Charleston when you're when you're from New York growing up, like Jet Yankee fans. You're like, yeah, I want to go to, I want to go be a Gator. They're on TV all the time, you know, the Gators. So, which is obviously, thank God I didn't go there, but um, <laughs> different, little different scenarios, different schools, but. Yeah, I was lucky enough to uh, – yeah, Coach Calvi just went the defensive way. I think he wanted to do that. And Coach Lee was involved a little bit in the recruiting process, you know, picking me up from the airport. And I'll never forget, as soon as I came to the airport and he picked me up, he's like, Bobby, the cheapest place in the, cheapest place in the country to live. Low gas, low low, uh, low rent, mortgage is good, low taxes. I was like, oh, sounds, sounds pretty good. Sounds awesome for a college kid. But, uh, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, so I, I was going to say, I imagine it had to be kind of a no-brainer for you, especially you get on campus in South Carolina's opening up the brand-new baseball facility, Founders Park, which, I mean, you know, I always tell people Sarge Fry Field was a great park, and I remember specifically when they announced they were building a new stadium, thinking to myself, you know, oh, why do you why do you need to do that? Everybody loves the Sarge. And then you see Founders Park, and you're like, oh, that that's why. I mean, I had to imagine for you walking into that facility, it had to be just like a no-brainer uh, coming out of JUCO. Yeah, it was there was fresh paint on the walls. So we were taking we were still taking buses from the Sarge like over to the over to Founders Park. Like, you know, Coach Espo and, and Coach Tanner are driving on the gravel like across the <laughs> parking lot to just to get us ready to to go for a scrimmage, you know, during the fall of two thousand and eight because it opened up officially right in two thousand nine of mm. February. Yeah. Yeah. And a perfect day. I think it was like sixty one degrees with, you know, perfect sun and then Darius Rucker was there. But yeah, just yeah, I wasn't uh I wasn't thinking too much about the stadium at the time. Coach Calvi sat me down on a bench in Florida. And uh you know, I think after I had the best round of batting practice in my entire life where I probably hit eight home runs out, which I never did that ever again. Um, but he's like, Yeah, we got uh we got thirty five percent scholarship. 
we need to know in 48 hours or less. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, let me call my dad. <laughs> He's like, How you, how's your financial situation, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, yeah, let's, uh, you know, next day, we're like, yep, let's roll, SEC. You know, whether you face, you know, 96 on Friday night or 89 on Friday night, you better be ready to go. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a little fish in a big pond and just to get exposure. So kind of worked out pretty decent. For sure. So you get on campus, obviously, fall 2008, like you mentioned, and South Carolina made it very clear to you, you know, they needed a shortstop. Obviously, Reese Havens, who definitely one of the best players, I would say, at that position in South Carolina history, uh, like yeah. you said, taking probably the first round. You know, I know, obviously, you have to battle every single day and win the position, but it sounds like they made it pretty clear to you that, and I'm sure you felt this way, if you came in and did what you needed to do, you were going to be the guy at shortstop for South Carolina. Yeah, I tell people that story all the time where I'm, it's early work on Wednesday and Friday, Friday afternoons. And it's like, it's four, five o'clock. And we don't really have, we only have like two or three groups that play in infield. And I don't really see any, I don't really see any dirt marks at shortstop. And I'm like, what's going on here? Like, why is there dirt marks everywhere else? Why is there, why is there cleat marks at second and third and first? Like, do we not have like, do we not have like five shortstops at South Carolina, like ready to beat each other out? So I think it was me. I can't remember his name, but it was me and another freshman. I don't think it was Yakamini was next year, but yeah, it was me and another freshman, um, decent little player, high school player, but I think they were going off of experience and they were kind of, like you said, kind of just waiting for me to really mess things up big time, which I did mess some things up for sure, but not, not big enough, I guess, in Coach Tanner's mind. <laughs> No doubt. So you mentioned Coach Tanner. Obviously, I got to ask you, you know, Coach Tanner, one of the legends. Again, I know Calby recruited you very heavily, but uh, I imagine Tanner was pretty well involved. And, you know, it's funny, I've had a lot of different guys on the show that have had a lot of different experiences with uh, Coach Ray Tanner. What were your first interactions with him like? And when you, you know, when you take a look back at your South Carolina career now, I guess, what was your relationship like? And what is it like now with uh, with Ray Tanner? I think it's like, I think it's more of like a, a dad situation where it's kind of like, I'm not your friend, I'm your coach. Um, um, he's kind of intimidating, I guess, at, at times. Uh, always, you know, hey, hey, how's your grades? How's your grades? If my, you know, if, my, if your grades aren't good, send you back to New York. That's what he's saying uh, <laughs> pretty much constantly. So that was intimidating always. And get a, get a rise out of me for sure. But, um, yeah, just, I mean, we have a bunch of stories, a bunch of good ones. And um, just, just kind of he demands respect. And, uh, you know, we give it to him, you know, we give him respect and then we joke around with him as much as we can. But yeah, he definitely, when we talk about Coach Tanner, he, he's big on players. I mean, I'm sure you could attest to that by talking to Wingo, you know, mm -hmm. about all that stuff. He, uh, he definitely lifts some fires under him and me and doing your job. You know, he's, he's there to, he's, he's there to motivate you to do your job. So that's the for sure. So that first season was South Carolina 2009. Again, breaking in Founders Park. I mean, again, you fill in the role beautifully, I think, especially at the plate. I think with uh, 291 overall for South Carolina, four homers, 30 RBIs, uh, 955 fielding percentage, which was solid overall. I mean, how would you – I'm sure, you know, going Juco, and we've seen it, you know, lately with South Carolina. South Carolina has been the beneficiary, I believe, of a lot of junior college guys that have come in and made an immediate impact. And you can just see how it helps guys get ready for the next level. But – you know, when you take a look at your freshman year, how would you assess your freshman year, how you were able to adjust to, uh, to set, you know, SEC baseball? Yeah, like junior college, you're seeing, you know, 88, 92, you know, maxing out at 94, 95, um, you know, on Fridays and Saturdays. And then you get to the SEC and it's, you know, Mike Miner, Drew Pomerantz, Sonny Gray, uh, David Price was before me. 
but those guys are, you know, those guys are sitting 90, 93, 94, but they're hitting their spot. They're, they're, you know, they're coming with a curveball, oh, oh, instead of, uh, you know, a flat fastball right down the middle. So it's kind of like, you know, high A or double A pitching, I guess you could say. But yeah, no, it was tough. It was tough adjusting. And um, the ball would just, I remember, I think Parker Bangs, you know, his first, his first swing in batting practice to me, you know, he just, he just, he just hit a nice one hopper or line drive right past me at shortstop, you know, in batting practice on the first day. I think it might have been at the Sarge. And I was like, that was the fastest ball I've ever seen in my life. You know, just coming off. I mean, he's six four, you know, two two thirty. But I was like, is that how every ball is going to be in the SEC? This is this is not good. This is really not good. And I think Walker can tell you that too. When he was at third and I was a freshman, you know, coming in too. But just the ball just comes off the bat so much faster, especially with those old stealths that we were still swinging. That smoke and all them were swinging. Ebert, uh, Jackie swinging the orange one. But it was yeah, it was it was bad. It was fast, but. You know, you just gotta tell yourself, and I'll be ready. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see more and more and more. And experience to me is everything. You know, the more and more you do something, you know, the better you get at it. So, no doubt. So, obviously, like you mentioned earlier, we've had a couple of different guys on Chris Wingo that, you know, guys that experienced 2009 opening day, first game at Founders. They all talk about just how special that day was, how emotional it was. I guess you could say Darius Rucker singing the national anthem, throwing out the first pitch, stuff like that. I guess for you, you know, you talked about you're from Smithtown, New York, didn't really know a whole lot about South Carolina, Columbia, or South Carolina baseball, anything of that matter. When did it, I guess, was it that day, or when did it click for you just, like, how important the baseball program was at South Carolina? Because it's definitely not like that at every single school. I really feel like it's it's it holds a special place to South, South Carolina fans. Yeah, I, I think, you know, with Wingo and, and Christy, those guys who are, you know, kind of from here, that it's way more special to them. And uh, – you know, I wasn't there for four years either. I was only there for two years, but yeah, different different side of the story. But yeah, I think just going out there, I was probably expecting maybe you know like a thousand people or so, expecting you know the opening day, just cold, it's a cold day maybe. But yeah, I don't. I was I was amazed. I was amazed. I couldn't believe that there was I think over eight thousand people we had, and then a celebrity, you know, a country singer singing. It was. It was unbelievable. My parents were there, so it was also special for me. They couldn't believe what they were seeing, too. They never – they didn't know college baseball. They knew college football was big, but for college baseball to fill the stadium like that and be that loud and that into every pitch, it was like uh, it was like being at Yankee Stadium when I grew up. Just every single pitch, the, the fans were complaining. It was unbelievable. They were just going crazy. So, very special day, special experience for, you know, this, this state, too. No doubt. So I mentioned a couple of your teammates, obviously guys that played second base, played all over the infield, really. But you were a guy I mentioned before, one of the smoothest South Carolina fans I've seen at the shortstop position. You always just seem to make the exceptional play look, you know, not too difficult and the normal play look very easy. As far as turning double plays, I know the relationship between a shortstop and a second baseman, that chemistry is extremely important. Uh, who would you say would be the guy that, and I feel like it's probably going to be Scott Wingo because you guys spent the majority of the time together, but which which of the guys would you say you had the best chemistry with as far as flipping double plays? Because you guys were fantastic at it, obviously, while you were at South Carolina. Oh yeah, no doubt. It was you know it was Scott for sure, and just just having him there, just getting the ball close to second base, and uh, he could just he could just get to first base, you know, easy and as quick as possible. I think there was one play where um, the ball just kind of the ball just takes kind of a weird hop, or maybe I just made a bad play. It kind of ricocheted, like, off my chest, off my glove. And, like, the ball goes up in the air, and I don't see where it goes. And next thing you know, I look up, and the ball's, like, in Wingo's glove. I'm like, oh, cool. That was, that was nice. But uh, just just kind of he's saving my butt. You know, sometimes it's always good. But 
yeah, it's just, it was just easy working with him. You can give him a bad flip and off the middle, which is which is awesome for a shortstop. So we got to go a little bit further sometimes, make a bad throw, and you know Wingo's always there to pick you up or you know save you in some kind of way or to turn you know turn one into two easily. So yeah, the chemistry chemistry on the field was awesome, and um, I think Morales was Adrian was playing a little bit of second two wit at times, but uh, yeah, then they went to third. But yeah, Scott was there for most of the time, and he was. Yeah, he was, uh, he was pretty smooth. He was a good one. For sure. I was just going to follow up with that kind of switching gears. Did, did, did you ever – were you ever in the infield and just like – just wowed by the plays that Scott Wingo was making? Because obviously we're going to get into 2010, and I mean obviously he made a ton of plays in 2010, 2011, stuff like that. But I mean what, I, I imagine working with him in practice, some of the plays he was just making were just absolutely stupid. Yeah, he, the, the way he would – just the, how smooth he was with the backhand. I know I had trouble with backhands. A lot of people do. But the way he made his backhand look and then going to his left into the hole, you know, into right field at second base, just, yeah, insane. And he wasn't he wasn't scared to leave his feet. You know, I'm kind of a lengthier dude, I guess you could say, you know, more skinny. So I hate leaving my feet and getting up. But he would leave his feet full full extension. And for somebody to get up that quick, you know, it's hard to do. And that's – he was actually – he was probably one of the better ones in the country at that. So that's that's always, you know, awesome to do when you can leave your feet completely and get up and make that guy throw the guy out of first base so that's hard to do so I know me personally Bobby when I think of your game I I think of you know your game defensively especially your biggest strength being the the ball that's kind of a slow roller chopper if you will you fielding it on the run kind of throwing it just flicking it over to first I feel like that was your money play what what would you say if you've assessed your own game was sort of your strength if you will you talked about Bobby or excuse me you talked about uh, Scott Wingo and his backhands what would you say was your kind of your your money you know or your the signature of your game if you will no yeah you nailed it man you nailed it uh on the run you know watching Jeter every single day in New York if he made a play on the run and I missed it I was pretty I was pretty upset with myself but yeah I just studied the way Jeter moved on the run whether it was one hand extension or two hands to the side and slick sidearm you know on the right side of that you know pitcher's mouth and I teach it to my eight nine-year-olds every day and they under they don't understand why we're doing it but I tell them when that guy's getting down the line you can you do not have time to set your feet at the next level on a slow roller. You don't, and you can't barehand it either. So you got to go one hand extension, Jose Reyes, or like Wingo would do, or you go two hands to the side, boom. You know. So, but yeah, that was that was probably my my favorite play to do. I would I would do it too much. So when I got to professional baseball, they would tell me to stop doing it and you know kind of charge the ball, charge the ball, catch it, and gun the guy out like Brandon Crawford. Stop. Stop making an ESPN play. This is not college baseball anymore. So that was uh, how to get over that fast. But yeah, some plays you got to do what you got to do. For sure. So the 2009 season obviously ended, you know, very rough fashion for you guys. You go to the Greenville Regional, get eliminated there, and like comeback fashion, which was uh, I know is tough on the entire team. Obviously, you come into 2010, uh, and we all know what happened. South Carolina wins a national title. Coming into 2010, was there any indication to you? that that season maybe could have been that special? Did anything feel different to you about versus when you came in 2009? No, it was a horror show. It was, it was, it was brutal the way I tell people, I guess to make it more dramatic. Um, we lost to Clemson 2 out of 3. I, I fell over Barry in right field or left field or something, hurt my shoulder. And then when you get hurt, obviously everybody thinks you're faking it. So everyone's calling you names and stuff, and you're sitting there losing 19 to whatever at your home against Clemson with a swing on your shoulder. Then 
everybody gets moved around. Um, I'm still hitting terrible. I think I'm still hitting 160 at the time, 170. So Coach Tanner finally gets me back to the Tennessee series as I'm healthy. I get a couple of hits, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, and then all of a sudden we start to uh, – we swept Arkansas. That was it. That was the moment where we're like, dude, we just swept Arkansas at Arkansas. No one ever – I don't think anybody has ever done that. And we just – you know, Witt was having a home run. Jackie, every, everybody was just playing good. And Dyson was mowing people down. Blake, usual. So, after that series, I think the third base coach for Arkansas said, you guys – I think you guys will be in Omaha this year for sure. Like, he even told us that. You got no chance to win the national championship. So, just moments like that. We thought we could go. I think we started 9-0 and or 12-0 in the SEC or something like that, maybe, or 8-1. I'm not sure. But uh, we were preparing it up. And then again, we hit another rut in the SEC tournament. We always go two and barbecue. And we were hitting so bad that Coach Tanner said he wanted to hit and run with two strikes, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that, just, say, just think about that in your head real quick. Hit and run with two strikes. That's how bad things were going offensively before and after the SEC tournament, before we played uh, Bucknell, that regional, before the magic happened, I guess you could say. So, yeah, crazy. You mentioned the South Carolina-Clemson series, Bobby. That, that 2010 season, that was the first time South Carolina had lost the series to Clemson since 2006. Now, we know that you guys got your revenge in Omaha, but before we get to that, uh, just kind of talk about it again. You didn't know a lot about South Carolina when you got there, and obviously you didn't know a lot about the South Carolina-Clemson baseball rivalry, which is regarded as probably the best rivalry in college baseball, in my opinion, at least. Um, I guess, when did it click for you? What was your experience like playing in those games, and when did it click for you just how big those games were? I think just, like, getting – like, the fans getting rowdy at Clemson, like, kind of staring you down a little bit, you know, kind of calling you names on fly balls, like, down the, down the left field line. You know, that's how, how loud the stadium was at Clemson, how intimidating, and, you know, the terrible – the awful colors, orange and purple, just <laughs> – just, just hate, just yeah, just buying into. Oh, I mean, nothing. No offense against him. I know he's a great coach, but just, just the way kind of Coach Leggett kind of carried himself out there, it just kind of makes you, just makes you feel like you just want to destroy them. Just, just put a put a ten spot up in the first inning because they get rowdy and, you know, Coach Tanner doesn't jump into his players or jump into a circle of his players before the game. I'm pretty sure Coach Leggett did something like that to kind of rub me the wrong way and. I don't know, yeah, because he's, he's very, very athletic looking, more of a maybe a player coach, I don't know, but just made you be like, dude, I really don't like these guys. Let's, let's, uh, even though I'm from New York and I have nothing, I know nothing about this rivalry, let's, uh, I really don't like these guys. Let's just, let's just, let's just kill them. <laughs> so, <laughs> for sure. So, that. so that 2010 season for you personally, you know, Bobby, pretty, still pretty consistent at the plate, I would say, three homers, 24 RBIs. 263 average, but your fielding percentage jumped from 955 to 976. And I really believe that 2010 season, you know, especially when you do it in Omaha, is the reason South Carolina fans remember you so vividly for not only, you know, how smooth you were with the glove, but obviously you had some clutch hits in Omaha as well. Talk about the 2010 season. Do you feel like you made a big jump as far as maybe didn't show on the stat sheet and then also in the field, you know, 20 points higher fielding percentage? I guess what changed for you from 09 to 2010? Yeah, I think 09. I was batting better in the SEC, and then Coach Tanner would usually take me out late in the game to try to get, like, a pinch hit home run, which sometimes would work. But, yeah, just, I think, playing better defense, knowing the knowing the field, um, knowing how guys hit the ball. We had better scouting reports in 2010, you know, paying attention a little bit more. But, uh, 
also kind of being mad that, uh, you know, thought I would have a better year. You know, I thought I'd have a better year my junior year. So I worked a little bit, worked a little bit harder. I had surgery going into my senior year. So my arm was feeling a little bit better. It was more cleaned up inside my shoulder. So and that's a big thing too. But yeah, like I said before, you know, just experience. Uh, knowing the way the ball bounces on the infield, you know, Donnie is, a, is an unbelievable to work that ground screw hard and just it's place I think I think it's still one of the best places in the in the country to play you know South Carolina's baseball field the way it's you know right before right before the game is perfect so uh, defensively I knew every bounce knew every hop knew the pitchers knew the hitters so yeah just experience pretty much of all things but yeah no doubt so again that season you guys finished overall 54 and 16 21 and 9 the 2010 season you talked about um, it's weird. The South Carolina baseball program, for whatever reason, hates Hoover. Uh, you, you guys went there, lost your first yeah. two games. It's, it's funny. Both the national championship teams, I think, didn't do well there and the 2012 team. It's just something about South Carolina and Hoover does not mesh. But you guys go into the NCAA tournament. Either way, you're the number one seed in the regional. You guys host the regional. Um, I, I actually forgot about this as well. I was just reading up on it. But you guys obviously go on a crazy run as far as post consecutive postseason wins. I talked about that with Christian Walker. It was like 22, I think, or something. Uh, Whatever the numbers, it'll never be broken. But you guys in that very first game in the regional are down five to one to Bucknell. I think a lot of people forget that. You guys rallying that one, score five runs in the eighth inning, go on to win that one. It was actually a pretty tough regional because the next game, uh, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but you guys face Asher Wojcikowski, who was a first round pick for the Citadel. Um, you come from behind again and get the 4 2 win. You know, just talk about, I guess, going through that regional because, again, this is you know, the start of that winning streak, but it was not easy for you guys, at least in the beginning. Yeah, I'm glad that we didn't go, you know, two. I think I went two, right? Two or three in the regional? Yeah, three, three games, three games. Mm. Three games, yeah. So, three games. I'm glad we didn't go three games, three and oh, because I think it made it so much tougher. That You know, the Buck – first of all, I think it rained during that Bucknell game, didn't it? Put a rain delay in the game in, like, the fifth or the sixth? Yeah, I think so, and yeah. We came inside and did, like, some kind of avatar thing, like a weird little – I don't know. We were all making weird noises. I wasn't a part of it. I think John Taylor started it, maybe. I think I'm just calling people out here, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then the avatar stick was created or something. Pat Sullivan was carrying it around or – I don't know. And then all those shirts were created, you know, like, like five months later. But, yeah, just – I think we did some kind of weird thing and, you know, bonded – you know, when it was down, when we were down 5-1 in the fourth or the fifth, and I remember Marzilli, you know, getting a base hit to start it or a double or something, and then Walker. You know, people forget Marzilli the way he started rallies for us. Like, he's never mentioned at all. I feel like, you know, still to this day, you know, Walker kind of overshadows it. But, yeah, Marzilli got everything started, I think, in Omaha too. But, yeah, just to grind through that awful uh, – that regional, it just made us tougher – and Wojciechowski was absolutely nasty. I think he might have a little bit of control issue, but we got we put him up for a couple runs and uh, yeah, just fought our way through it. And then it got us kind of it set us up for that the hottest the hottest super regional of our lives, you know, down in coastal. So yeah. no doubt. So I want to talk about something you just mentioned as far as you guys antics. You go back in the the dugout and do what you had to do, or go back into the uh, the clubhouse, if you will, but. The, the 2010 and 2011, and really those that, that great run you guys had, those teams were known for playing very, very loose, being kind of jokesters. I mean, the first guy that comes to my mind is your buddy Michael Roth, just leading the charge in regards to that. Talk about kind of the superstitions you guys had. I remember the, I remember the wrapped bat you guys had in Omaha with the baseball on it, the, the pant legs hiked up. I mean, what, 
what were some of the crazier, I guess, superstitions or things you guys did on that run? Yeah, I think um, I think it got worse in 2011 when I wasn't there with the the fish and all that, or fear the fish or something. But <laughs> yeah, I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't always a part of all that stuff. Um, I'm not saying because you know we were the starters and the guys who were pitching to the bench were doing it, but it's kind of it's kind of true. Like if you're not if you're not playing every day, if you're not an everyday guy, and if you're a bullpen guy, you know you're gonna you're gonna flip your sunglasses upside down and put them on your head like Ebert. You're gonna you're gonna shave your head. You're gonna have a mohawk. You're gonna have your pants come up like tweeners instead of up or down so just whatever quirkiness things uh you know, that would work uh you know they would try it that's pretty much that's pretty much it i i uh I don't, i'm trying to think of what things we would do um we all had our own click too it was like the seniors then it was uh you know i think morales morales jones ebert me and then it's you know, roth and matthews and it's walker marzilli and there's Wit and Wingo. So you had all your different crazy groups, but I tell people this all the time. We we didn't it's not like we went out to dinner with each other every night. We all had like five or six different clicks, but once we once we got on the diamond, it was like, dude, we got a job to do right here, right now. Do your, like just do your job. No doubt. So before we get into that super regional and uh at Coastal Carolina, Bobby, you know, you talked about one of your teammates, Adrian Morales, and a guy that you know, South Carolina fans, really when I think of Adrian Morales, I just think of, of just a pure gamer, a guy that played with a lot of intensity and, um, you know, someone that was very fun to watch. What was your relationship right like with Adrian Morales playing next to him? No, yeah, it was awesome, man. I saw I saw a guy that was just the, the biggest heart on the field, you know, just put his heart, just wears, uh, wears heart on his sleeve. He doesn't, doesn't really have a filter too much. <laughs> I think there's a video too of uh, Coach Tanner yelling at him, and he's like, "Calm down, Coach. I got it. Relax, relax, though." You know, he'd always say, uh, "He would always say uh, dog," but you know, his Miami Spanish accent, it would say, "It would mean it would say doe," pretty much. So I was like, "Stop calling me a deer, dude. Not cool." But yeah, no, awesome dude. Um, just, just awesome to have him at third base. No ball got by him, and then when when things got tough, it wasn't it wasn't pouting at all. He wasn't putting his head down. Over three, three Ks, not putting his head down. I think he made the last out of the game in Oklahoma, fly out to center um, in 2010. And then I heard him say, the coach Tanner, I think, or someone say that that'll never happen again. Just he wants to be in that situation. He wants to be up. You know, whether he's got four strikeouts or five strikeouts in the game, he's, he wants to he wants to be up in that pressure situation. He does not care. And I think he gets you know, overlooked all the time. People just don't appreciate it because he's not 6'3", you know, 200 pounds. So, but yeah, definitely a gamer for sure. For sure. So again, you guys win the, uh, win, win the regional, the Columbia regional, you guys go to Myrtle beach to face uh, the number four national seed coastal Carolina. Uh, I want to get your take Bobby, because from the guys that I've talked to in the past, Blake Cooper, Christian Walker, again, names go on and on. They talk about, they think that was the best team that you guys faced, even amongst the teams in Omaha. I mean, what was your take on that Coastal Carolina team that you guys faced? Yeah, that was, that's accurate for sure. I think Omaha, it seemed like everybody was kind of maybe, you know, overhyped maybe a little bit, especially Arizona State. But, yeah, just I think they had a couple guys in Coastal. That, that left field wall was so short. I think it was 310, even though Walker cleared it by like a mile. Every, it just – it, it just got us nervous every time a right-handed hitter got up there, whether Dyson or Coop was pitching or Price. It just it made every at bat but that much more important. But yeah, we made some good defensive plays, timely pitching. But we were just 
we were just tough. We had to grind through it. Really, really grind through it in the heat. I think it was the hottest. I think it was about 98, 99 degrees. But, yeah, that coastal team, I think Noel, Rico Noel, and uh, even a couple guys that played with in pro ball were on that team. And they're, they're still hurting to this day after that, uh, after that game. But if we went to a game three, I think that's what people say. That's what usually we say. We were, we were, we were running out of pitching. So if we went to that Monday or that game three, we were in trouble. So for sure. Yeah. So, so you guys, you know, Walker hits the, hits the monster home run, which I agree with you. I don't think that ball has landed yet, but you guys go to the top of the ninth. You're up by one run. Matt Price is on the mound. You're dude. Um, and there's a chopper hit to you. Describe the emotion. I mean, obviously your guy, you want the ball hit to you, but I mean, this is, this is literally a ground ball to send South Carolina to Omaha. Describe the emotions as far as you see that ball coming toward you. You know, you do want the ball hit to you, but when the ball is hit to you, you literally feel like a seven-year-old kid, and you're like, why is this ball coming to me? I don't want, I don't want this ball. Because you know it's sending the team to the promised land. But, yeah, as you can see on my bad, on my throw that was low in the dirt, it was, uh, it was the most nerve-wracking thing. It was the easiest ball to catch, but hey, after the catch, what do you got to do? You got to make the throw. So I think I threw like a circle change over to Walker, and he like sandwiches it into the dirt and comes up with it and just throws his glove like 10 feet in the air. So I was like, oh, this is cool. But, yeah, Coach Tanner – I think Coach Tanner picked me up after that, and he's like, you almost bounced it. You almost bounced it. I was like, dude, we're going to Omaha. Calm down. Relax. We're, we're, go we're going. And then the dog pile was just, uh, yeah, the best. That was – I think that was one of the best feelings ever, you know, because we're you're going to the you're going to where everybody talks about. Everybody in the country talks about you're going to Omaha. So yeah, it was very special. No doubt. That's awesome. So you guys again get to the college world series. Um like you mentioned, the field is very, very hyped up. Obviously, you talk about Arizona State, Oklahoma, Clemson, UCLA. Um, you guys get there. You lose the opener to Oklahoma four three in a game that again, I think a lot of fans forget. That game was nine hours due to uh, two rain delays for rain and lightning. I know that had to be absolutely brutal. So you guys lose that when you talk about Morales flies out to end it. I mean, you guys have to wake up and play another game, and you have to play the number one national seed in Arizona State. After you lose that first game, just trying to talk about the, I guess, your, you know, the morale of the team, what your, what your feelings were after that. I mean, what was going through you guys' head? Yeah, I think we just, we didn't, I don't want, I mean, I wasn't enjoying myself. It wasn't fun because the weather was terrible. You know, your family's in town. They're, they're flying out there. Like, go, oh, we're out here when it's, and it's raining for nine hours and we lose a game. So we're just kind of, we're just kind of trying to battle. We're just kind of, you know, you know, stick, stick to our game plan and just go out there and play baseball. And Arizona State, I guess, advertised, you know, we needed more pitching. But I think we went to, uh, I think we went to a uh, children's hospital too. So we talked to a bunch of the doctors, the nurses, and the kids there. So that was a little uplifting. I'm not sure when that was have been right before UCLA but I think it might have been before our second or third game so that was kind of that was cool for us to see that and you know talk to those kids and you know coach Tanner was trying to make sure that you know it's not all about baseball out here you know, you know we got to enjoy our time and you know do our things out here and have an impact and you know make sure we're make sure we're a class act team make sure when we come back here again that people are going to remember South Carolina you know how good how good of a how good of people we are and the character you always talk about character so that was really important but yeah, getting back, I think, you know, it's all about pitching. I don't think Arizona State had it, Oklahoma, and UCLA, and South Carolina. I think we were the only guys to really, and TCU, have that dominant one-two punch with, you know, your big boys in the bullpen like Taylor and Price. 
So, yeah, that was uh, – if, if you don't got pitching, it's kind of hard for you to, to compete. But we were ready to just come out swinging with a glorious – I think it was perfect sunny day in Arizona State. We just put it on them. So. Yeah, you guys smashed them. Won that game 11-4, to hitting the ball over the yard. The next game, you guys get the rematch with Oklahoma – um, in a game that I know South Carolina fans sure to remember one of the best games I think played in the College World Series that year. But you guys get the win over Oklahoma 3-2 to two in 12 innings. Uh, your season literally coming down to the final strike with Jackie Bradley Jr. at the plate. He gets the clutch base hit, and then Brady Thomas gets the hit up the middle that uh, scores the winning run. I mean, j- just talk about the emotions behind that game because, again, you guys are literally down to your final strike, your, you know, possibility of going home and – just a lot of a lot of special guys and a lot of different special moments to keep the season going. Yeah, I always thought it was a strike until like you look at the video that Jackie's no, that ball's way inside. <laughs> and it's Jackie. So he's got he's got the best eye in college baseball. So yeah, for that ball to get through, that ball was hit hard and then people don't talk about Brady enough. Brady Brady was always studying to I think become a nurse, but he was he's probably one of the best hitters on the team. You know, D'Angelo Max in 2009 said hey man look out for this guy named uh, Brady Thomas he's about five foot five but just just watch just watch I was like dude whatever and he hit like three home runs in in a squad the first day or something it was something ridiculous but the guy just absolutely matched his whole career not a lot of love but you know he's one of the reasons why you know we're at the top dude and he walked it off right there so yeah just once again that was another game like the uh the regional where we're just we're showing who we are. We're battling. We're tough. You know, we're not, we're, we weren't, none of us were scared to be in a situation where it was nerve wracking. And that's what the world is today. Everybody's scared to fail and be in a situation at 13 or 16 U baseball tournament. It's like, you have to embrace it. Like the guys on TV, if you don't embrace it, you guys are going to be scared and you're probably going to fail. But even if you do fail, it's all right. So that's what, that's what we did. Jackie and all those guys. And then Witt obviously as well. For sure. So you guys beat Oklahoma, advance to you, – you get Clemson again. You've you got to beat the Clemson Tigers twice. Obviously, they're excited. They're thinking they're going to the national title. Um, you know, it's funny. We had, again, your teammate Blake Cooper on this show, and he, he talked about – I thought his comments were very interesting saying about the South Carolina-Clemson game. And, again, he's a guy that's from South Carolina, understands the rivalry. But he basically said, you know, that's who we wanted to play. You know, we wanted a rematch. And um, he, he thought that they, maybe they were they were intimidated by you guys a little bit. Just kind of talk about what you remember from those two games and, uh, you know, beating Clemson, obviously with the first game being Michael Roth and the, you know, in a game that no one would have expected him to go to a, go to a complete game. Yeah, that was crazy. We, I think we just asked Roth to, to, to go like four or five innings and then we'll, you know, go into the Bulldogs and then he just, you know, shut him down for, I guess, the whole game, I think nine innings. So, but yeah, just, I think, you know, once again, Kyle Parker for Clemson, I think he was on the team. He didn't he didn't play well. Um, they didn't hit. We kept them all balanced. You know, Blake diced them up with all kinds of off-speed pitches, you know, showing his fastball and running his two-seamer and then his, you know, his change-up and his curveball, stuff like that. So, yeah, we just kept them off balance. And they just uh, – yeah, they never, they, never hit like, uh, they never hit like they were supposed to against us. We kind of just shut them down. And then I think Walker had some really good defensive plays. Enders always had some big games against Clemson. I never play well against Clemson, but yeah, Walker, big, big, big hit, big stop at first, Enders, um, and then our pitching was, our pitching was the reason why we kind of, you know, took it to the next level and finished up series. Instead of the, you can't just always get your timely hitting. Timely hitting is great, but yeah, our pitching, Roth was, Roth was epic. That started his run, but uh, 
yeah, Blake is definitely, you know, a big reason too why we you know, continue in that series. So, for sure. So you guys take out Clemson, take on UCLA in the College World Series final. You talked about you thought South Carolina had the best pitching in that College World Series. Obviously, you know UCLA throwing out guys like Trevor Bauer, Garrett Cole, who are making a lot of money at the next level doing it. Did you feel like those guys? Were they as good as advertised? Were they a little overhyped? I mean, what was the mentality of the team, I guess, facing two guys like that who were, you know, truly the best in college baseball? Cole was good, but he's like, they were just puppies. He was just, uh, he was just a freshman throwing, you know, 97 miles an hour. So it was flat, no movement. Um, we got lucky, you know, had, had a jam shot, had a sack fly. Brady had a check swing double for, I think, like an RBI or two. Ball went through uh, second baseman's legs, something like that. So that, that kind of got them start off into the wrong foot. And then I think Blake just shut him down. But just I think we our bullpen, I think like John Taylor and Mata, those guys don't get talked about enough either. Those guys are, you know, slinging it from the side, you know, to these right-handed Clemson and UCLA hitters. And it's hard to hit. It's hard. And then Bryce was – Bryce's confidence made his 94, 95 look like it was 100. Or his 93 look like 97. So, yeah, we – uh I don't think we phased Bauer. I think we just missed him. We had to get into the series. So, Bauer was warming up in the pen. And, um, yeah, if he came in, that would have been bad news, too, I think, for us. But I think we would have got to him. Um, but, no, those guys have completely developed into superstars, That which exactly what their scouting reports were and all the scouts that drafted them said they were going to be. But at the time, yeah, Cole, for for his 18-year-old mind to be into that, being that, you know, in that spot, in that situation, with a just with just a good fastball, I think uh, you know our hitters and the way we were as a team, we were ready for it. No doubt, and like you said, you guys smashed UCLA that first game seven to one, and a lot of interesting things happened that game. Like you said, I mean, a check swing double, a ball goes straight through UCLA's second baseman's legs. I mean, yeah. in that game, was there ever a point where you're like, you know, maybe we're maybe we're kind of destined to win this whole thing? Yeah, when I have two RBIs in a game, that's uh, that means something's really working for you. So uh, even even after the, after the game, I, I think I was getting interviewed by uh, it might have been ESPN. I don't even know, but Coach Tanner, Coach Tanner was getting all nervous. He thought I was going to say something to an embarrassed program. I think he's like, Bob Haney, don't say anything. Just 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 nod your head. Just act vanilla. Be vanilla now. But Coach, I got it. Don't worry about it. We'll be all right. We'll be okay. So yeah, just everything going everything going our way. So it's kind of starting to. Uh, starting to take a little bit of a turn but I think our key is you know Coastal in two Clemson in two like don't go to a game three Gamecock do not go to a game three please so you no doubt so you get you guys get in game two again another pitching battle really really good baseball game overall um Brady Thomas like you mentioned he leads off the inning with a double I believe and you're up to bat it's one nothing UCLA, bottom of the eighth inning, so obviously late in the game. One out, 2-2 two, two count, you're at the plate, Bobby, and I guess what you could say is you hit one of the – probably the probably the best chopper you've ever hit in your entire life. Just trying to talk about that at bat and just, you know, getting the game-tying RBI in that moment. Yeah, just uh, – I think I think Wingo had some decent at-bats. I think somebody ran on the field. Uh, there, was, there was a guy that came out of uh, center field and ran on the field before or during my at-bat. So, uh, not that I was going to get a hit anyway, but – no, just yeah, just rolled over, hard rollover. I fouled a couple pitches off, but a hard rollover. Um, and then your boy, the UCLA guy, um, just just wanted to backhand it for some reason. Could have got around it, opened his glove up. What I teach my youngsters every day, tried to backhand it, goes off the heel, 
or his forearm, rolls over second baseman's head. And then Robert Barry scores. And, um, yeah, we're in a good position now. But, actually, I think that was my run earlier because I didn't come get a ball at shortstop. It was, it was 0-0, and I played back on a ball, fielded on the outfield grass, threw the guy, threw, threw the ball across the infield. The guy was safe. That guy scored. And then, uh, yeah, I heard I heard a little bit from Coach Tanner dugout after that. He was uh, he was on me pretty bad, asking me if I wanted to win this game. I was like, yeah, I want to win the national championship. Yeah, sure. So he's like, come get it, come get the ball like you always do. And I didn't come get the ball that one time. I think Earl Hershiser was also giving us some, giving us a lot of stuff during that series. But yeah, that was my run. And then I guess the baseball gods give back to us, tied up one-one. And then a couple innings later, wit. So yeah. Yep. Yep, Witt. I was going to get to that. Whit Merrifield, obviously the game-winning hit. South Carolina wins the national championship. I mean, do your best, Bobby, just to describe that wave of emotions in that moment when Whit Merrifield gets the walk-off hit. Yeah, it was. it's hard to describe, really, as you kind of – how the heck are we, like, the only team standing out of everybody left? With one game to spare, by the way. So it's kind of like this is it's a dream. It's a dream come true. You're sitting on your couch the year before after ECU – which we hate, by the way, knocks you out. And you're sitting on the couch watching LSU win the national championship with your parents, you know, making dinner, just an awful feeling, surgery. And then literally a year later, you're sitting in front of ESPN on the field, you know, raising the trophy. And, you know, your Facebook and your Twitter is just blowing up like you're, like you're you know, Alex Rodriguez or something. So it's just – it's insane, man. It's a great, it was a great feeling, but – just for the fans, you you don't realize how important it is to get back home to Columbia, which was probably the better feeling than the dog pile, because the fans they lined the streets up at the parade, and you know, we went to Colonial Life Arena. As soon as we got off the plane, took a bus right there, and it just they're just so proud. Everyone everyone I talked about was just crying. They, you know, grandparents and Gamecock fans of 60, 70 years. Just it's it's unbelievable for the state and the school. And Coach Tanner was. You know, a huge weight lifted off his shoulders as well. Just, yeah, just an unbelievable feeling. So, Absolutely. So, Bobby, for you personally, you know, during that run, obviously, you're, you're taking in the 22nd round of the 2010 MLB draft by the San Francisco Giants. Um, I don't remember specifically what date it was that year. I know it kind of changes a little bit and if you guys were playing or not. But just kind of talk about that day when you drafted, when you got the call. Was it in the middle of a game? I mean, what, what was that day like when you found out you were drafted the Giants? Uh, yeah, they didn't uh, – I don't think they called me. They um, – I think they drafted me first. It was about 20th, 21st round. And I was like, oh, maybe they'll draft me in the 23rd round. That's my number. And then 22nd round came along. Uh, they drafted me. Um, and they gave me a phone call just saying congratulations. Obviously, cool feeling. Awesome feeling. You know, you don't want – you want to always continue your career and not have to, you know, try to sign as a free agent or independent ball. So, yeah, they gave me a shot. You know, utility player here and there, starting job for one year. But yeah, it was a grind, and if you do average, you know your time is up. So you gotta you gotta tear it up in pro ball to uh, pretty much stay around. But yeah, no, definitely dream come true to be in pro ball and play it. And um, you know, no offense to college, but you know you're learning from the best guys literally in the world that have played at the highest level because the minor league coaches they've all played in the big leagues, and they uh, they have the best you know skill set and the way of teaching I've ever seen. So that's pretty much where I learned a lot of my stuff. So it was, it was an honor to play. You know, pro ball for a little bit. 
For sure. So when you look back on your minor league career, Bobby, obviously a guy like you, I feel like you're a real, a real technician of the game as far as obviously you're teaching it now and um, just the way you played the game, you know, hit 262 overall in the minor leagues. You look at your career overall, had some really good seasons. I mean, 2000, 2012, I look at specifically, you only played 64 games, but we're hitting 310. Um, when you just take a look back as a whole, because you played from 2010 to 2013, when you take a look back at as a whole over your minor league career, what, what are your biggest takeaways, I guess, from playing minor league baseball? Uh, development, for sure development. Big leagues, they got to win. College, I feel like you got to win. Um, high school, maybe not so much, but just development. You know, you're not trying to who – who's trying to win a – who's trying to win a championship in the minor leagues? Nobody. I mean, what do you do? What are you doing every single day of your life? You're working on your swing. You're working on your glove. You're working on your arm. You're hanging out with the best of the best trainers and coaches that have been there. And they haven't been to double A. They were in the big league. So they're telling you all these little things, you know, all these, all these, whether it's, you know, legal or illegal to do, which is, you know, awesome. But they're, they're teaching all these little things to, to get you better, you know, on and off the field, how to take care of your body. You know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting talked to before breakfast from Willie Mays. Sean Dunson's in the dugout messing around. Will Clark is talking to me about, you see what the pitcher's doing right here? I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't get that. You could probably get that maybe in the Yankees organization with with all those guys, but you know, it's the Giants organization. You're dealing with some of the best players in the world, so Willie Mays being one of them. So, yeah, just uh, just an honor and you know, development standpoint. You know, learning about hitting the ball the other way, which I should have done more, you know, throughout my college career instead of looking to pull every time and uh, you know, counting hops in the infield, whether should I go back and attack and having a mental clock in your head all the time, but taking care of your body. I think people, people that sit there on their couch and watch Major League Baseball, you know, they get hate, they, they hate on all the guys for taking drugs and steroids, but to play every single day, I mean, you ask Witt or Jackie, playing every single day for 162 or 190 because of the off days, you, you have to, it's a grind. It's, there's, when, when high school kids say that they're grinding, it's a joke. The, the grind is the bus ride, waking up in the minor leagues, no air conditioning, no sheets on the bed when you get to your hotel room at 2.30 in the morning. Are you kidding me? Like, you can't make this up. These stories have been going on for 40 years, and they went on with me in 2011. So it's just it, – it's hard, man. It's a grind. Some kids, some people are married with kids, and, um, yeah, it sucks. So you learn to take care of your body. Um, and you learn how it, how it is to, you know – work your butt off but make a lot less money than other people are doing in the world so would you say that was the biggest transition for you just as far as lifestyle or because you know it's kind of funny I mean you go from college to professional and so you would think when you hear that word like oh well you know professional you're going to be pampered more and you know in most other sports at least like you think NFL NBA you go from college professional when you're a pro athlete I mean you're you're making a ton of money you're staying in the most luxurious places but baseball is so much different because I mean I would I think you would certainly agree. You're getting treated way better at South Carolina than you are oh, yeah. when you're in the minor leagues, right? I mean, I know that has to be a huge transition for guys. Yeah, they don't they don't have any uh, coach Tanner didn't have anybody backing us up. You can't you can't go recruit new players in the middle of the season. So you can get a Dominican anytime you want uh, to come to come out of the AZL and come take your spot. You can bring a guy down from Double A. You can bring a guy from Low A. So you're you're also dealing with that pressure of dude. I'm over my last 16. I'm, I'm, not, I'm probably not going to play anymore. But, yeah, three days in a row, um, four days in a row, five days in a row, you're still playing. You got hit by a pitch the night before. You're not feeling that good. So you're taking Advil every day. 
and then you got to play seven days in a row because somebody's got to give Joe Panic a day off in the minor leagues. So <laughs> that was that was always fun when I th- thought I was getting a day off. You know, I got to back up. You know, I got to go in for Panic or you know, some other guys, the prospects that were in the uh, Giants organization. So yeah, no, it's tough, but it got you ready, I think, for you know the real world too because you fail so much and you know you're in such a you're in a foul mood most of the time in the minor league. But when you're having success, it's a uh, it's a good feeling, and you think. You know, you're one one or two calls away from uh, you know making it to the big leagues. So, for sure. So, Bobby, let's tw- switch gears a little bit. You are a published author. Your book, From Kings Park to Omaha, um, kind of just talk about what inspired you to write the book, and uh, you know, just a little bit more about the book for those that maybe haven't got the chance to read it. Yeah, just you know, being from uh, like you said, New York, and not knowing too much about the college atmosphere, I think that was kind of inspiring. You know, to be down there and the national championship, obviously, the big thing. And then um, Baylor Keel, um, you know, him passing away right before the UCLA series was, you know, such a difficult time for his family. And, uh, you know, Coach Holbrook was really close with them. And just we were, we were tied up with them and that whole story. And it really inspired us. And, you know, we feel like it helped us, you know, win that national championship too. So, yeah, just that, that whole story. But I think um, another – I think Travis Haney also wrote a book too about Baylor. So I kind of made it more about – you know, my life, you know, growing up so I can kind of, you know, give the kids, you know, in Columbia an opportunity to read about, you know, growing up outside, playing baseball, working hard and, you know, respecting your parents and, you know, doing the things. But yeah, those, those couple of things. And then Derek Jeter too, he's my idol. He, he wrote a book about kind of, you know, his life story and stuff like that. So yeah, definitely inspired about a couple, inspired from a couple of things, but yeah, the kids, uh, the kids really enjoyed the book and it's, uh, yeah, it's going pretty good. Yep, and you can buy that book on bobbyhaneyofficial.com for sure. Be sure to go check that out. Also, Bobby, I want to talk. You've got a podcast called Tagging Up with Bobby Haney. Um, I've seen it on your Twitter page, obviously on iTunes, basically everywhere you can listen to a podcast, you have it out. It really talks about you know, youth baseball, whether you're a player or a parent, you can really benefit from it. Just kind of talk about more so about your podcast, Tagging Up. Yeah, just the overall, you know, development of the kids and uh, attitudes and the coaching and how to run, you know, how to run your practices. Um, dealing with failure is obviously a big, uh, big topic. But yeah, each week we go over different topics. Um, trying to get, I'm trying to get some more, more info, more people on the show, hopefully. But yeah, just, just about, you know, about growing up and you know, being a kid playing baseball, you know, doing the right thing. Um, you know, your your work ethic outside, uh, inside. Um, you know, being motivated, just yeah, stuff like that, different topics throughout the baseball, mainly for guys who are, um, you know, not past the high school level just yet, high school and below. So, yeah, it's going good and continue to uh, continue to grow each day. For sure. And fans who are listening to this, please be sure to go check that out as well. And lastly, Bobby, I want to talk to you about you're obviously doing um, a ton of different baseball camps. Obviously, you're, you're a teacher of the game, no doubt. Uh, first thing I want to ask you, I guess, is, you know, where does that come from as far as – because it sounds like you're very, very passionate, not just about the game of baseball. You're very passionate about playing the game of baseball, but you're very passionate about teaching it. Um, where would you say that comes from? Did, did you come from a family of, you know, baseball coaches, or is that just something you developed over time? No, I think it's because we have such a lack of maybe teaching the game the right way around here maybe. Um, like Florida, Texas, California, New York, you got all these, you know, pro guys, right? You got all these major leaguers coming back. But, you know, around here, I don't know if we have so many professional baseball players, former ones that, 
you know, come back and do teach. And if they do, maybe they're not as motivated or inspiring or, you know, I get pretty crazy out there when I'm teaching a nine-year-old kid and parents kind of, parents kind of look at me like a, like I'm a weirdo, but you know, I get, I get really into it. And you know, why are you not setting your feet? Why are you setting your feet? Blah, 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 stuff like that. So just, yeah, I'm just a kind of fiery guy in that sense. Um, you know, and I kind of, I kind of obviously steal coach Tanner's methods a little bit, try to fire people up. Um, but yeah, just, just love teaching the game because a lot of people aren't teaching it the right way. They're just teaching it kind of the generic way because, you know, they don't do it for a living or full time. But yeah, we're out there full time, you know, Garnet and Black Baseball, two or three travel teams every season and, uh, you know, two or three practices every single week. So this is what I do. I don't, I don't do anything else. I'm looking at, I'm looking at swings, till swings or defensive plays till 2 a.m. helping kids. And uh, yeah, no, I just love it. I just love the art of it. You know, learning about hitting. I didn't learn about hitting until minor leagues or out of the minor leagues. It was all skills or trying to do what you did during high school and JUCO. So trying to be a student of the game keeps you hungry. If that makes sense. No doubt. And obviously you've been doing a ton of different baseball camps that I want you to talk about. If you go to your Facebook, you actually just announced that Gene Cohn's going to be helping you out with outfield stuff. Obviously a guy that played his baseball at South Carolina. So very exciting for you guys, but just sort of talk about for the people listening. I'm sure we have people listening that either play baseball or have kids that play baseball. Just kind of talk about what you're doing as far as with the summer camps and the instruction. Yeah. Summer camps getting full uh, developmental baseball league. Um, so it's not your, not your, Pick, pick popcorn in a movie type of camp, uh, not your daycare type of camp. It's going to be more of your eights and nines and, you know, your elite 10-year-olds um, for a month, three days a week, training on Monday, learn every position on Wednesday, scrimmages on Friday. And, yeah, we're going to try to get Gene out there, um, a great catching instructor, probably the best in South Carolina, uh, Roger Diaz. He'll try to be out there as well. He just played independent ball, moved here from Kentucky. And, uh, yeah, just – just running through the running through the stuff, um, but we're trying to get trying to get these kids to play all different positions, which I even have trouble doing. You know, with my teams, is keeping your kid at keeping that star at, at short, keeping that star, you know, at catcher instead of moving that kid around the left field and making a play first and second base and learning the pivot. So I think that's the biggest thing that we're you know we're hurting these kids with is you know making sure they only play one sport or one position. We gotta we gotta move them around and make them become all-around athletes so they have more doors to open up when they get older. No, for sure. I absolutely agree with you on, on that. That's awesome. As far as, Bobby, when you look back on your baseball career at South Carolina, if you had to pick one, what would you say was the best memory you have as a Gamecock? Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one. Besides, uh, besides five points. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, that, actually, that might be – no. Um, well – Hey, it can be on field or off field. I'm fine with either. It's, it works either no, way. No, I'm just messing around. Um, yeah, the the coastal dog pile. I think that was that was probably one of the best memories. Coastal dog pile or taking the field after Darius Rucker sung the national anthem to open the stadium, and taking the field and just seeing um, all those people. Just what is going on? There's nine. There's like nine thousand people here. This is a college baseball game, and we're playing like Liberty or something. Like it's insane. That's that's insane. I know you, everyone down here doesn't think that, I guess, but from where I'm from, that was crazy. And then seeing seeing our favorite girl, Erin Andrews, in, El, in Omaha with 25,000 people around the whole entire field in their seats, that was also, you know, an aha moment or an oh my gosh moment and uh, the coastal dog pile as well. But yeah, that was one of my favorite moments. Um, you know, butt dialing 
butt dialing Coach Tanner at 3 a.m. Maybe maybe another moment. That was good <laughs> by accident. So yeah, that that didn't go over too well. But that's another story. Maybe another time. So yeah, just those type of moments were uh, you know makes you miss it makes you miss being a kid. It makes you miss being 21, 22 year old kid. So yeah. For sure. So one thing I forgot to ask you about, obviously you moved on to your professional career in baseball, but how much fun was it to be able to see the guys do what they did in 2011 and 2012, you know, winning it in 2011 and then going back to Omaha and getting in the finals in 2012. And then, you know, you played with a lot of legends, obviously a lot of names that South Carolina fans know, but two of them you mentioned earlier, Whit Merrifield and Jackie Bradley Jr., what they're doing every day at the major league level. I mean, how cool is it to just kind of know the legacy that you left and the legacy your teammates have left on South Carolina baseball and with currently what they're doing as well. Yeah, no, it's impressive to watch for sure. And Jackie's one of the most – he's got to be the best center fielder in the game, best outfitter in the game. And Witt, you could ask Witt about the grind. I'm sure he grinded, you know, to the minor leagues for, you know, a very long time. So, for him to have the success he's having, is, it's well worth it, man. He's, he, he, worked, he worked his butt off for it. You know, he put in the time. So, he deserves every bit of it. And, uh, yeah, they just got better. They, the Gamecocks just got better after 2010. I think they fed off the national championship and we're just like – I think Morales said something funny where he's like, Coach, we're not – we were going to Omaha in 2010. We were just going – we are just going to go to enjoy it. But in 2011, we're not going to Omaha just to go. We're going to win it. We're going to win it again. So they had that – they had that, like, ridiculous amount of swag in 2011, apparently, which I was in a minor league dugout, you know, not – not loving life, but loving the fact that, you know, the Gamecocks are still going strong. And we'll, we'll get back there. We'll get back there again one day. We just got to you know, keep going. So, For sure. What's your, what's your take on the – I don't know if you're a guy that gets to tune in a ton, but what's your take on the current state of Gamecock baseball? Obviously, Mark Kingston hired his first season. They, um, you know, make it one game away from Omaha in the Fayetteville Regional, and obviously this year, really, pretty, pretty rough year for South Carolina baseball. But I'm not sure if you've ever – if you've been back on campus, had any interactions with Mark Kingston, maybe had some interactions with him during your playing days. But what's uh, what's your take, I guess, on the current state of Gamecock baseball? Yeah, no, I actually keep up with it a lot, uh, more than I thought I would, just to try to you know, stay relevant with players and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I've only been up there a couple times, though, but watched it all the time. And, yeah, I think Coach Kingston is a teacher. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, really good teacher of hitting and the game of baseball. Um, but we gotta we gotta recruit. I think that's the biggest thing. Like I said before, I think you know, below the age of eighteen is development, and when you're in the minor leagues, it's development. Everywhere else, you have to win championships. You gotta you gotta recruit, you know, studs for lack of a better word. I mean, you can't you can't really teach a uh, a junior college kid coming in as a junior. You can't really teach him how to hit that quickly, or or teach him how to, you know, throw. Sorry, you got to get a uh, this this state and this uh this school demands winning, especially after what happened. So, I think the junior college route is great. It sounds like we're going there, and if you're going to get kids out of high school, they uh they should be pitchers throwing in the upper 90s with some good some good arm action curveballs. So, I mean, it's easier said than done, man. You got to buy in, and I think the kids are buying in to Coach Kingston. The injuries obviously you know, destroyed our football and baseball team this year which is I know no one wants to hear that I don't like to hear it either but it's life that it happens you got to have you got to be ready to reload in the SEC whether whatever sport it is so I think that's what we're we're trying to do but yeah we'll uh keep to stay positive and stay healthy for next year you know 
For sure. So, Bobby, last question before I let you go. Your funniest Ray Tanner story that you can tell on the airwaves. Well, I think that's what that yeah, that's what uh that's where I was going before. That uh <laughs> that story. I I mean it's kinda it's obviously a little uh not sketchy, but a little blurry, I guess you could say, because I don't remember everything. I wasn't throwing the ball my senior year of the fall because I had surgery. So we obviously went out on uh Saturday night scrimmage on Sunday in the fall and I get back at whatever time it was two or three o'clock and I look at my phone and it says coach Tanner you know two two forty five or two forty seven in the morning it says coach Tanner uh seven minutes and 35 seconds I go what the heck I didn't I didn't call him and if I called if I butt dialed him wouldn't I have hung up like when it wouldn't have ended so apparently I guess he was listening what was going on wherever we were downtown and uh I tried to cover it up the next morning and I see him smiling with a bunch of with a bunch of the coaches and I'm like hey Nick I was hey Ebert Ebert was my roommate at the time and I was like hey Ebert I don't think he knows that uh I don't think he was listening on the phone call I don't even think he knows it happened so we're stretching we're stretching and all I hear is Taney eh, get over here I'm like oh boy he heard about the, he know he knew he knew he was listening he was listening so I go, I go over there and he's like what were, we, what were we doing last night I was like Nothing. I was I was in bed actually, a pretty good time. And he's like, "You're a liar. You're a liar. Just just call just call me out." And I was like, "I was like, that was the TV. All that all that noise. Like, what was that noise? I was like, that was the TV. That was the TV. You can even ask Ebert." And uh, he's uh, he's just saying I was a liar. I was a liar. And then I was like, I was like, I'm 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 serious. I'm serious. I wasn't out. I wasn't doing anything. So he's like, since you're since you're not throwing, why don't you just run around the field every other inning? Just just run. Just run around the whole field. And I was like. Okay, that's 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 all right. Sounds good. Okay, yes, sir. So, yeah, that was the biggest punishment I had for for what for what I did right there. But yeah, I couldn't uh, I couldn't confess. Up. I was I was too scared at the time. But so uh, yeah, is, that's, is that's this one the, of the story. is this the first time like you've ever? Will he will he now know, or did you eventually tell him sometime down the road that like yeah I, I went out and butt dialed you? Oh yeah, I'll tell him tomorrow if I see him. I'll be like <laughs> yeah, he, knew he 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 knows he knows what we do on Fridays and Saturday nights as long as we. You know, don't act up and be stupid. You know, he, he knows what we're doing. But yeah, I wasn't. I don't even think. I don't even think I was going hard that night. I think I was just out too late because I think my ex-girlfriend at the time she was she was out with us. So I think um, you know I was giving her a pickback ride or something, something stupid. And then it must have my must have dialed him in my phone because I was texting him that day maybe or something. But yeah, when I got back to my house and I saw seven minutes and thirty something seconds, I was like, wait a second. He was listening the whole time. What do we do? I was like, Ebert, what do we do? What are, what are we doing? So he told me just to, he's like, just run around the field since you're not throwing the ball. I was like, yes, sir. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Bobby, really do appreciate it again. Really appreciate what you did for Gamecock Baseball. So many good memories and what you're currently doing in the state as far as all the instruction, the book, the podcast. I mean, like I said, you really got it going on, man, as far as, you know, all across the board. So definitely uh, let let all the fans know that are listening just kind of where they can find, you know, everything they, that you're doing, especially the uh, the camps you currently have going on this summer. Yeah, I'm big on Facebook. All the parents are on Facebook. Uh, Bobby Haney Pro Baseball on Facebook. Uh, Garnet and Black Baseball is my organization, travel ball organization. That's on Facebook as well. Uh, maybe a little bit of Instagram. But, yeah, pretty much on Facebook. That's pretty much it find all the information I'm putting out there and uh or you can just email me you know about lessons camps uh team at bobbyhaney23 at gmail.com so yeah that's pretty much it 
For sure. So, yeah, go check it out. And, Bobby, again, appreciate the time, man. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with you. And uh, let's do it again sometime soon for sure. Yeah, man. Appreciate it, Chris. Thanks a lot, man. Absolutely. So, for Bobby Haney, I'm Chris Phillips. We appreciate you guys tuning in. And we'll catch you next time on another episode of the Spurs Up Show. Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.